The Gospel of our Lord according to John. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in. Our gospel reading from the Gospel of John continues. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Most cultures throughout time have had a variation of a commonly told story called the trickster tale. You may be familiar with Br'er Rabbit, who is a famous trickster tale character in American folklore. These tales extend the spirit of April Fool's Day as they are told and retold throughout the year. What makes these tales appealing is that the good guy usually wins in the end. And what makes these tales possible is the character flaw of gullibility. Such is the case with the Mexican trickster tale, Borreguita y el Coyote. For our translation today, The Little Lamb and the Coyote. In the story, as you might predict, the coyote is quite hungry and desires to eat the little lamb for dinner. And after several instances of trickery to escape being his next meal, the little lamb is found gazing grazing, excuse me, in her pasture one last time. When she realizes that the coyote is there with her too, she pleads for him not to eat her. And of course, her pleading does no good because it does not change his mind. He still desires to eat her. 
So she gives him one last request. She asks if he will swallow her whole so that her fate can be fast. The coyote says, Silly little lamb, you cannot fit into my mouth whole. She says to him quite confidently, Oh, yes, I can. I have seen coyotes your size fit whole lions into their mouths. You can do it. Since the coyote is still reluctant, she offers to help him out a bit, and she says, What if I get a running start, and you open up your mouth wide, and I will jump in and shimmy on down? After thinking about this for a few moments, the coyote finally agrees. The little lamb walks several yards away, and the coyote opens his mouth wide. On the count of three, the little lamb takes off running, and when she makes it to the coyote, she headbutts him and gives him a busted lip and a broken ego. And as the story goes, he never bothered the little lamb again. His gullibility sure did get him into a lot of trouble. And while trickster tales have been a fun thing over time, I'm convinced that the gullibility of the characters within them have put great fear in humanity. They give us examples of clever characters taking advantage of the gullibility of others. It causes the characters and the stories, and consequently us, the readers and hearers, to ask the question, can it be? Or am I being tricked? It's what happens to most of us on this day, April Fool's Day. We hear and see things nearly unbelievable, and we ask ourselves, can it be? Or am I being tricked? And it's not unlike the story that has caused us to gather in this sanctuary on this Easter day, a story wherein many of the characters ask themselves, can it be? Or am I being tricked? Mary Magdalene gets to the tomb anticipating for it to be just as expected, closed, with body just inside. She plans to stay and mourn for a while over her friend. When this is not what she finds, she returns to get the second opinion of a close friend. The other disciples, I imagine, ask themselves what Mary asked herself Can it be, or is this a trick? They rush off to the tomb, and they find the same scene and find linens lying there. Could this be a plot to lure them into the tomb and entrap them too? Could thieves have stolen the body of their friend and made off in the night? Could it be that a group group had taken Jesus' body to make it look like resurrection? but it was only intended to mock his followers? Or could it be, possibly, perhaps, that Jesus was not dead after all? It's here in the point of the story that Mary, the friend of Jesus, develops a fear of her own gullibility. She does not want to be tricked, so she gets in her mind that they have taken him away. It's the most logical possibility. 
So when the two angels ask her why she is crying, she gives them that answer, for she does not want to look like she has been tricked into another possibility, such as resurrection. Then a nearly identical exchange happens between her and the man in the garden, who she supposes to be the gardener. When this gardener says her name, she turns. I always imagine that time stood still in this turning moment, and it gave her just enough time to rethink the question to herself one last time. Can it be? Or is it a trick? Can my friend Jesus be alive? Or is it a trick? It's at this point where she lets her guard down and becomes vulnerable to the possibility and chooses the first option. Yes, let it be. The Lord is alive. I have seen the Lord is her witness. Others, too, saw the Lord after his resurrection, but there were only a handful of them compared to the great multitude of second- and third-hand witnesses who have come to believe in the last 2,000 years. Jesus will later say to Thomas in a story, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Whatever theory you and I bring to this story about what actually happened in the resurrection, I imagine that all of us have wrestled with a fear of our own gullibility as we have ruminated on this story. You're not alone. We live in a culture today that joins the characters of this story and asks the question, can it be or am I being tricked? Can resurrection be? Can God's love and mercy be? Can God live and move and breathe? Or is this simply another trickster tale? The stories of the resurrection in Scripture might be written for a purpose to deceive. None of us know. But they do not follow the patterns of the trickster tales that have been present in so many years of culture's existences. And while there are thousands of preachers across the nation today who are making great jokes about the overlap of April Fool's Day and Easter, he's dead, April Fool's, I cannot help but say that this story does not follow the common pattern of foolishness and trickery. You see, the actions in trickster tales are intended to ward off or to lure in, to escape danger or to induce it. This story instead brings hope and love and renewal and a bonding together of creator and creation. It does not dangle salvation on top of us to lure us into following Christ. It does not push us away because we are dangerous with our sin. Rather, it's an open-armed invitation to dwell outside of the norm and be recipients of renewal, reconciliation, and transformation in our daily living in Christ. We face a grave challenge with the Mary that appeared at the tomb. Do we guard our own gullibility too? Are we quick to choose the most believable option so as to salvage our ego 
Are we people who live in fear that our gullibility will overtake us and lead us into leaving false lives? Or are we a resurrected people living with the hopes of the impossible because of the abilities of the mighty God that we serve? While we cannot put our hopes on miraculous medical treatments, financial gain, or even the transformation of loved ones, we can find hope in the God of our lives who calls out our name in the midst of our grief and stands beside us in our challenging times. Perhaps it's time to resurrect our thoughts on resurrection. How have your fears of foolishness affected your relationship with God? Would a new way of seeing resurrection give you a new way of seeing God? For Mary, Mary having made the decision to be vulnerable and hold a risky belief, she was finally able to see the Lord. May we too catch a glimpse of the resurrected Christ by letting loose and giving ourselves grace to simply believe in the seemingly unbelievable. Amen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And alleluia that we serve a God that is not a God of just resuscitation, but a God of resurrection. Now, Cliff Castleman, who is up here with his daughter, baby Kai, is the director for the Center for Wilderness Safety, and he could tell you all about resuscitation. This idea of restarting an organ that has stopped working, maybe pumping with the heart to get the blood circulating again, to get oxygen to the places where it has been cut off, or bringing back to life. But resurrection is a bit different. You see, resurrection is new life. It's a transformation. And yes, you may be thinking ahead to these eight weeks of Easter where we hear all of these resurrection stories and we know that Jesus has the scars. It's not an erasure of the past. Our experiences shape us. They make us who we are. But resurrection is also God doing something new, redeeming us transforming us. You see, in the Gospel of John, it's known for imagery. We think of the vine and the branches, the cup, the water of life, the bread, all pointing to who Jesus is, what he is doing in our lives, and what he is doing in the world. So it's no mistake that in this resurrection account, Mary thinks that Jesus is the gardener. Someone who creates new life out of the dirt. Gardeners are ones who have a vision for something lovely. Then they plant and they nurture and they tend the plants until it is bloomed into something beautiful for all to enjoy. A gardener is one who can coax new life even out of things that seem tangled or hardened or overgrown. This is the Jesus of the resurrection, one who brings us something new, one who transforms us, 
one who resurrects us. But resurrection is not just a promise that comes at death. It's not just a one-time thing when you die, and praise God for that. Resurrection is a continual process, something we're invited into in every moment. We hear of that invitation in the story to Mary, and that invitation is something that is very personal. Jesus doesn't show up and say, I'm here, I'm alive, don't cry. But Christ enters in, sees her sobbing, and asks, why are you weeping? It's in this intimate intimate encounter when Christ calls her name, then she sees. Sometimes there's something that is right before us. It's there all along, and we may even race to conclusions, like the disciples raced to the tomb that morning. But it's in an intimate encounter with the living God that all of a sudden, what was there appears to be something new. We are standing in grace all the time. The Lord is present with us in every moment, and the call of resurrection is open to all, to open our hearts to experience the transformation. You see, resurrection is the greatest love we can ever imagine. But remember that love can be a destructive force just as much as it can be a force of hope and grace. Because love is something that causes us to die to ourselves. Love is something that causes us to give up so that we can give ourselves to others. Love asks us to stop clinging to our own values and our own ideas. Remember, Jesus said to Mary, do not hold on to me. Resurrection is change. Resurrection is transformation. Resurrection is a promise for always, but it is a promise for right now. We have something before us that we see quite often. We have the communion table. We're told to do this to remember Christ, and it's to remember the entire mystery, his life, his death, and his resurrection. It's not a one-time practice, because honestly, we need help remembering and remembering again that this is a continual, ongoing journey to be a follower of Christ. Christ invites us to bend our entire existence towards God, taking steps again and again as we remember that he is always inviting us in. Here's something that we may have gotten used to seeing, maybe as common as seeing a gardener in the morning. But God is is inviting you to encounter Christ now. In this meal, not of resuscitation, not to feed our bellies, but to cause us to consider ourselves and be changed. So thanks be to God 
that we don't have to wait until death to be transformed. And thanks be to God that we do not do it alone. I challenge you today that when you are passing these trays down your pew, that you look into the eyes of those who hand it to you. This, too, is the body of Christ. This is the body that is tangibly with us when we need help or when we're sick and we need a visit. This is the tangible body of Christ that weeps with us and cries with us and laughs with us. This is the tangible body of Christ sitting around you and across the world that helps us have faith when it feels like we don't have any on our own. This is the body of Christ that helps us to remember. So we now share in this meal together, a meal of grace and a meal of hope, a meal of remembering. And I remind you, this is not our table. It belongs to Christ. And that means that anyone who wishes to partake is welcome to come and join the feast. We celebrate this meal at McLean Baptist by taking the elements as one. So that means our deacons will pass out the trays and we will hold on to the bread and then take it at the prompting of the ministers. A note that the gluten-free options do contain almonds, and we misprinted that in the worship folder. Um, so note that they do contain almonds. After we take that together, um, we will do the cup in the very same way as a sign of our collective being the body of Christ, our collective remembering and our collective call to change and be renewed and resurrected. As the deacons come forward to prepare the table, let us hear an invitation. Come to this table where the living Christ offers us bread broken for our journey and the cup poured out for our tears. Share together in this meal where loss finds comfort and promise and despair is transformed into hope. Whoever you are and whatever you bring, hear the risen Christ calling your name and accept this invitation to new life.